Our Old Testament lesson comes from Psalm 21. Psalm 21, hear now the word of the Lord. To the choir master, a psalm of David. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exults. You have given him his heart's desire, and have not withheld the request of his lips. For you meet him with rich blessings, you set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you, you gave it him, length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation, splendor and majesty you bestow on him. For you make him most blessed forever, you make him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High he shall not be moved. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. For you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. This is the word of the Lord. Psalm 21 has an interesting structure. It's, it's a little different from most of the psalms we've been looking at. Uh, first, it begins with, with the congregation, uh, the, the, speaker, the, the speakers, it's a plural we, uh, give thanks to the Lord for what he has done on behalf of the king. And then verse 7 is something of a transition as it speaks of the king, for the king trusts in the Lord, and, and through the steadfast love of the, Lord, the Most High he shall not be moved. And then in the next section, a, uh, there's an address to the king, that second person singular, your hand, uh, this is now the king being spoken to. And then it ends with the congregational response, as it were, in verse 13. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength, we will sing and praise your power. And it's partly that odd structure that led the Free Church of Scotland to do the, uh, the, the sort of set up the version that we have in our red books. Uh, because there's, there's something of a refrain uh, in this psalm, it's not, it's not that the words are the same. It's rather that verse seven and verse thirteen both ha- are sort of this unique thing, and so and so they they wound up putting a it's a two part tune with sort of a refrain for verse seven and verse thirteen, uh, and since there aren't very many tunes that do this sort of thing, they commissioned one of their own composers, Isabel Scott, to write the tune for it, uh, because they recognized that there were two distinct moods in the psalm, and so those two moods are captured in the two different parts of the tune that we sing. Uh, so that's where it, it was really well done, and that's why it was taken over from the Free Church of Scotland into a, over here on this on this side of the Atlantic. And I should and actually it's. You may, have, you may have noticed by now that uh, when, it, when it comes to music, we don't really fit in the typical spectrum of churches. We're not particularly contemporary, but neither are we especially traditional, because we take the view that we should sing the best of the best of all ages. Uh, some, churches, some churches seem like they're kind of stuck in the 19th century and seem as rather irrelevant to the present day. 
Other churches, I would suggest, are stuck in the 21st century. And you might be like, wait, huh? How is that a problem? That's where we live. But a church that is stuck in the 21st century will have nothing to say to the, pre- to the, to the 21st century. Because we'll be so much like our culture that we won't understand what's wrong with our culture. We need the wisdom of the church in all generations. And that's where, yes, their words, also their music, in order to remind us that we are part of something bigger, something that is, that is, that is stretching over centuries, stretching now over millennia. And that's where there shouldn't be a worship war between old and new. We can keep singing the old while gradually adding the new. Over time, we'll discover that some of the oldies weren't quite as goodies as we thought they were. And there are new compositions that are truly excellent. And that's part of our goal is that we're not, we're not just going to sort of stay sort of, oh, this, this is what we sing and we're just, that's, that's all we... No, we want to keep... We want to keep adding, both by looking for what are the best of the best of all ages, but also what's the best of the best of what's being done now. We can never say that we have arrived at the perfection of church music because we are a pilgrim people and we walk with the saints from all ages. We, we should cherish the good gifts that God has given to his church in the past and we should nurture those gifts in the present toward the future. One of the things that I realized as I was in, in, as I was in working on this project over the last 20 years is that very often when churches get so focused on, ah, we want to find the best of the best of the past, the problem is you don't wind up training composers as to how to continue to build on the past. So that's where some, sometimes there's a tendency to sort of poo-poo the new stuff and because all we're so used to the past... But then others get so used to always sort of this perennial revolution. I I was once talking with a fellow who was really into church planting, and he was like, ah, you know, there's a good church over there, but but their music only appeals to people in their 30s and 40s, and so the younger generation doesn't go for that. And I asked him, so are you saying that that basically, okay, so that church is for people in their 30s and 40s, you're going to plant a church for people in their teens and 20s, and then in 20 years, somebody else will need to plant a church for the, younger, for the next generation because your church won't be good for them. And he had the honesty to say, yes, that's what I'm saying. And I'm like, this is not a good idea. The perennial revolution is not going to actually work because we need... We need all generations to be working together in the building up of the body of Christ. And so that's where, as we, that's part of why we want to continue, even though we're doing a reprint of the white books. You know, we're, not, we're not saying this reprint is the final edition. We want to continue to, to grow in our musical praise to the Lord. Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 17. Hear now the word of the Lord. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something, and he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? 
they said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. And immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, them, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise. And leaving them he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. This is the word of the Lord. On Palm Sunday we remember the coming of the Lord Jesus to Jerusalem as he rode on a donkey. The picture that Matthew draws here is of the king coming in peace to his city. Uh, somebody riding on a donkey, uh, sometimes we think of it as, oh, if he was coming as king, he'd be riding a war horse. But that would be if he was coming as a conquering king, as one who was coming either to conquer or in celebration of his great conquest. But he is not coming to celebrate his great conquest. Why would you ride a donkey into Jerusalem? Well, this is what Solomon did when he was about to be crowned king. He rode a donkey into the city. This is the king coming in peace, 
the king coming for his coronation. Because this is how the king of the ages will be crowned with a crown of thorns as he will go to the cross, as he will bear our sin and our misery and our guilt and our shame. Jesus is king. We live in a culture shaped by democracy. Our constitution says the highest authority is we the people. So it's not surprising that our culture has tried to make religion more democratic as well. But the religion of the Bible is uncompromisingly monarchical. Jesus is king. I am not. You are not. No. Jesus is king. This point should actually help us a great deal in our prayer life. Jesus is king. I am not. What I think about what needs to happen next, not all that important. What Jesus thinks should happen next, that's what matters. Because he's the king. Last time we looked at Psalm 20 and we prayed that God would save the king because we saw that it's only if God saves the king that we can be saved. Now in Psalm 21, we thank God that he saves the king because now the king can protect us. This is a great psalm for Palm Sunday because this is the the coming of the king to sit enthroned in, in righteousness and justice. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exults. It's important to pay attention to the way this prayer works. There are lots of different prayers in Scripture, and it's, it can be useful to pray the Psalms. Uh, that's why I'm really delighted that Jacob is so in the way that he's leading that Thursday morning group, because praying the Psalms gives you so many different models for prayer. So many different examples, so many different ways of pulling your life into the story of what God is doing. How do you pray Psalm 21? Because this is not like most of our prayers. This is not the only way to pray, but we should, at least occasionally, pray like this. We, we pray to God, but we pray to God not about our own joy and praise, not about our own prayers and petitions, but about the king's joy and praise. We actually know how this works. We've actually done this before. Well, presidential campaigning is back up again. Don't we do this? We sing the praises of our preferred candidates and we get committed, you know, involved in, ah, how can we make sure that, that the king, and remember, in American politics, the president is king for four years. That's, I mean, it's, we don't call him king, but practically speaking, he's king for four years. And that's, this is, a, in one sense, a good and proper instinct in all of humanity. We know that we need a king. Without a king, things will go really badly. Now, if you've got a bad king, then things might go even worse. But we need a king 
who rejoices in God's strength and exults in His salvation. And so we come to you, our God and Father, because you have heard the cry of our King, your Son, our Lord Jesus. And we praise you, O God, because King Jesus exults in your salvation. We should at least sometimes pray like that, because we got Psalm 21 teaching us to. Why does Jesus rejoice in God's strength? Well, we see five reasons given in verses 2 through 6. First, in verse 2, you have given him his heart's desire. We saw this last time in Psalm 20, verse 4. May he grant you your heart's desire. We were praying for King Jesus. May, 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 the, may God the Father grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. Now in Psalm 21, we, we get to pray, You have given him his heart's desire. You have done what the king asked. You have not withheld the request of his lips. You have done what you promised for Jesus. This is why we read Hebrews 4 and 5 a few weeks ago. Because Hebrews 5 quotes from Psalm 2, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Jesus is the Davidic king. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. And then, that Hebrews blends that together with Psalm 110. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is both king and priest, just like Melchizedek. And, and Psalm 110 points us to the day when the king would also become priest. And, and Hebrews brings all this together by saying, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. When, when Jesus was on earth, in the days of his flesh, he offered up prayers and supplications. Think about his great high priestly prayer, or you could call it his great prophetic prayer, or for that matter, his great kingly prayer in John 17. Or think about his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus cried out to him who was able to save him from death. Precisely the point here in Psalm 21. And he was heard because of his reverence. This is why the Lord Jesus must be fully God and fully man. He must be fully man because he had to be the prophet, priest, and king that Moses, Aaron, and David could never be. The problem was no mere mortal whom God ever called to be prophets, priests, and kings could ever manage to save his people from their sins. There were good prophets, Moses, Elijah, Isaiah. There were good priests, Aaron, Jehoiada, Hilkiah. There were good kings, David, Hezekiah, and Josiah. But at their best, they did their jobs faithfully and, and then died. And their tombs are with us to this day. They died. As long as our prophets, priests, and kings keep dying, we have no permanent future. But Jesus is not only true man, he is also true God. He has the power of an indestructible life. So when Jesus, as man, fulfills all that Moses, Aaron, and David could never do, he becomes the source of salvation to all who obey him as Hebrews puts it, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, 
He became the source of salvation to all who obey him. What does it mean that Jesus was made perfect? Wasn't he already perfect? If you think about the word perfect, it can have two different meanings. There's the idea of moral perfection or sinless. And in that sense, well, Jesus was already sinless. So in that sense, he was perfect already. But being made perfect does not mean that he was previously flawed because perfect can also mean complete or mature. In order for Jesus to be our Savior, he had to pass through suffering and death to glory. Without the suffering and death, he was not yet perfect. He was not yet a perfect Savior. He had not yet passed through that thing that he had to do in order to become the perfect Savior. I mean, think, of, think of how we get diamonds. That lump of carbon is going to be a diamond, but it can only get there through the right temperature and pressure. Otherwise, you might just wind up with a lump of graphite. You know, graphite and diamond is the same stuff, just different temperature and pressure. (laughs) But the only way for man to survive the high temperature and pressure of God's wrath was if the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The only way a a son of David, a, a son of Adam, could be made perfect was for the Son of God to be born of the Virgin. And what Psalm 21 does for us is helps us to see how, yes, Jesus, Jesus died for my sins individually, but in our individualistic democratic age, we need to remember that we, we need more than just an individual Savior. We need God to save our King so that He could deliver His people from their sins. Salvation is both individual and corporate. And when you are united to Christ, you are thereby united to his people. You become part of his family, part of the body of Christ. And Psalm 21 highlights this feature of our salvation because we give thanks to God that God has saved our king. Verse 3, for you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. We are getting excited about what God did for Jesus. Because when God saves our king, that means we have hope. We thank you, O God, that you have blessed our King Jesus, that you have crowned him with glory and honor. He asked life of you. You gave it to him. Length of days, forever and ever. Remember, God had promised to David that his son would sit on his throne forever. Now, It may be that some people in Israel thought of this in terms of, oh, that just means that he'll have a never-ending succession of kings. But that's not what God said. And that doesn't appear to be what David believed. It's not that Psalm 21 had one meaning for David and a different meaning for Christ. No, actually, the point that David sees clearly, this is why this Psalm of David is speaking of somebody other than David. Because this is the king who will reign forever. He asked life of you and you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. That's what David knows has been promised. But David also knows this isn't going to be me. Because God told me that it would be one of my sons, one of my descendants, who would have this. So this isn't me. This is Jesus, David is saying.
And because of this, verse 5, His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on Him. In one sense, sure, David gets a glimmer of this. David gets moments of this. David and his sons, at least the good ones, passed through suffering to glory in small ways, thus foreshadowing Christ. And so Israel kept singing Psalm 21, but always with that forward-looking focus. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. How does the king become glad? Because of the presence of God with him. Because God is with Jesus. Because in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is both God himself, and he is with God, because that it is this one who has come in our flesh, who now has been seated at the right hand of the Father, because when the Father seated his beloved Son at his right hand, Jesus has won the great victory over sin and death. Now, in verse 7, we have this interlude as the voice shifts. Now it says, For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Now, whereas verses 1 through 6 address the Lord in the, in the second person, verse 7 speaks of the Lord in the third person, which sets us up for what follows. Because verse 7 winds up standing at the center of the psalm. This is, this is sort of the chief takeaway. What do you need to remember from Psalm 21? Remember that the King, Jesus, trusts in the Lord. Through the steadfast love of the Most High, He shall not be moved. I'm going to say this in a perhaps a slightly shocking way. It actually doesn't matter whether God hears me. What matters is that God hears Jesus. Now, why did I say it that way? If I think that I can just go directly to God on my own, just me, why should God listen to me? God listens to me. Why does he listen to me? How can a human being, how can one of us actually come to God and say, God, you should pay attention to what I'm saying? Because of Jesus. It's because God hears Jesus that he hears me. If God doesn't hear Jesus, we're all dead. It's over. What matters is that God hears Jesus and because Jesus has promised to intercede for you, therefore God will hear you because he hears Jesus. Psalm 21 is really driving this home by saying what really matters is that God hears Jesus. If God hears the king, then we have hope. If God hears the king, then he can hear us. He will hear us. This is why Jesus taught us to pray in his name. Praying in Jesus' name is not a magical formula. It doesn't mean if I, if I use these words, then I get what I want. To pray in Jesus' name is very much like being baptized in Jesus' name. It means that I am identifying with him. When I pray in Jesus' name, when I pray according to his will, I am being conformed to his image. God has promised that he will grant all that the king asks. 
Everything that Jesus wants, the Father will do for him. And so we need to learn how to pray for what Jesus wants. How do we know what Jesus wants? That's why we have the Word of God. And as a particular example, we have verses 8 through 12 of Psalm 21. Because Jesus wants to triumph over his enemies. He wants his kingdom to come. In in verses 1 to 6, the psalmist addressed the Lord in praying about the king. Now in verses 8 through 12, the psalmist addresses the king. Now, it might seem a little odd that they're singing to the king. I mean, David isn't God. But the Davidic king foreshadows Jesus. The king is supposed to look like God. Uh, Actually, this is why Jesus quoted Psalm 8. Uh, We saw Psalm 8 a number of weeks ago, that God had created Adam to be his likeness, his image and likeness. And now the king is is the Son of God. He, the King is the one who is supposed to sort of bear humanity before the Father. Now, notice how verses 8 through 12 does this. First in verse, verses 8 and 9, notice what happens when the King appears. So, your hand, O King, will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you, O king, appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will consume them. So the king makes his enemies like a blazing oven and the fire of the Lord consumes them. The appearance of the king is like the appearance of the Lord. This this is where we see one of the benefits of praying the Psalms in Christ. If you try to put yourself at the center of the psalm, this becomes an incoherent psalm. How, me? I'm not. This isn't, this, is, this isn't my job. This is Jesus' job. Exactly. Jesus taught us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. How then do we sing psalms that call for the Lord to swallow them up in his wrath? How can we say, verse 10, you will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man? Well, The point is that the enemies of the king, those who oppose Christ and his kingdom, are to be cut off. Now, we're not talking about the the jerk who cut you off as you were driving yesterday. After all, that that could have been a Christian teenager who was just learning to drive. It's interesting how charitable towards other drivers I became as I started having more and more teenagers driving. I was like, oh, you never quite know who that is driving that car. But the enemies of verses 8 through 12 are those who are hostile to Jesus. And it may take shape in terms of of their hostility toward Christians, but the enemies are attempting to overthrow the kingdom of Christ. And our prayer is that Christ would destroy his enemies, which is entirely consistent with the call for us to love them and pray for them. We hope and pray that they will be like Saul of Tarsus and converted to become those who make disciples for Jesus. We we pray that God would change their hearts. But it's, it's not loving to wish that the wicked would continue in their wickedness. The loving thing to do is to pray that God would change their hearts, that they would repent and believe the gospel. But if they if they if if he will not turn their hearts 
Then as the old Irish curse puts it, may he turn their ankles so we'll know them by their limping. Something has to change. And, and God has made clear, it's not our job to bring vengeance. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. But if vengeance belongs to the Lord, then it is right to ask him to do his job. As Paul says to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 6, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. King Jesus will make all things right. Our shorter catechism points out that Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. We once were aliens and strangers. We were once enemies. And Christ has subdued us to himself. You have been conquered by King Jesus. And so you pray that he would continue to do this in conquering his enemies. And we pray for this, as, again, our, our shorter catechism has a useful way of putting it, when we pray in the second petition, Thy kingdom come, we pray that Satan's kingdom may be destroyed and that the kingdom of grace may be advanced, ourselves and others brought into it and kept in it, and that the king of, kingdom of glory may be hastened. Because we're not praying against flesh and blood. We are praying against the principalities and powers, we are praying against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And in that light, verses 11 and 12 make a lot more sense. Though they plan evil against you, Lord Jesus, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. For you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows. There are moments when I, I look at our current situation and I, I shake my head in dismay. Because at, at times it, it sure looks like evil is winning. If things continue on the present path, I shudder to think of where things will end. But that's the very thing that the psalmist says will not happen. They will not remain indefinitely on the present path. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. You need to believe this. Oh, they may succeed at making your life miserable for a while. Think of Absalom's rebellion against David. His life was miserable for, for quite a while. But in the end, they will not succeed. Because Jesus is king. The king sits enthroned in the heavens. We do not yet see everything under his feet. But we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. And that's why we don't fear suffering. Because this suffering for the sake of Christ is what we are called to. It's part of the reason why I'm never worried about the outcome of any particular election. I mean, by all means, be thoughtful, be responsible in your exercise of your civil rights under the U.S. Constitution. And, no, of course, don't join in the plots and plans of the wicked. Don't help to devise mischief. But if you can vote for a candidate with a clear conscience, do so. And if you can't, then don't. But remember that, that Jesus is king. God has saved the king and seated him at his right hand in glory. Therefore, God will hear all that Jesus asks, and he will do all that Jesus requests. And Jesus is asking God to bring judgment against his enemies. Jesus is exercising dominion over the earth, and he is, he is doing his job. I know sometimes you start wondering, maybe he needs a little more help from us. 
What is the help he needs from you? Believe him. Trust him. Obey him. When he calls you to love your enemies, to pray for those who persecute you, believe him when he calls you to walk humbly and faithfully in every situation you face. We live in a broken world. We live in a world where things are not the way they should be. Who has the power to fix this mess? Who has the strength to put things back together, to make things right again? This is why Psalm 21 concludes, Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. We praise Yahweh. We praise our God because he has established his king. If Jesus is king, then this means that we need to live as though Jesus was king. Because he is. It's not just we live as though he's king, even though he's not. Don't we tend to do that a lot? I've noticed in in my own life, when I really became committed and just, just, as I really became like, okay, no, actually, I need to live as though Jesus is king. It changed the way I think about a whole lot of things. Because the appearance of the king is to reflect the appearance of God. And those who have been united to Christ are to reflect his appearing. I think of an example that happened a few years ago where a young woman in our congregation appeared before a county official on behalf of a friend. And through her mediation, she obtained justice and saved her friend $5,000 and a whole heap of trouble. Jesus is king. And living in just ordinary, everyday life is how we live out the kingship of Christ. When we see injustice about to happen, we intercede on behalf of the weak. If we're going to sing, be exalted, O Lord, in your strength, we will sing and praise your power, then we should use the strength and power of our Lord Jesus to love and serve others. Because if God has saved the king and raised him up to his right hand in glory, then his strength and his power is at work in and through us to make known his mighty deeds among the nations. And don't be afraid, because Jesus is king. And God's power is made perfect in our weakness so that as we pass through suffering and death, we also come to the glory of our resurrected Savior. Oh Lord, have mercy on us because we are forgetful and we do not remember your great love and your great kindness to us in Jesus. But yet we thank you that you have answered Jesus He asked life of you, and you raised him up from the dead. His glory is great through your salvation. You have bestowed splendor and majesty upon the Lord Jesus and seated him at your right hand and made him glad with the joy of your presence. May that presence, may your Holy Spirit continue to work in us that which is pleasing in your sight, that we might be your servants, that we might be your children walking humbly before the face of the watching world as those who bear witness to the glory of Jesus. For we pray in his name. Amen.